0: James chapter 2, 2 verses 1 to 13. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2, 1 to 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged By the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the previous chapter, the apostle at the end of the chapter, especially in verses 25 to 27, he has drawn attention to this perfect law, the law of liberty, and the fact that we should live by it. And whenever we hear it, we should not forget what it says, but practice it, employ it, do what it tells us to do. And then in 26 and 27, particularly how we relate to one another, because he brings up what true and undefiled religion is in verses 26 to 27. And, 20, and true and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is, to love your neighbor as yourself It's even those who are downtrodden, the poor among us, but also to live a godly life, to live a holy life. These are two ways or two aspects in which we show that we truly love God, we truly understand the Word of God, and we are doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. One twenty-two, And then now, He presses this point. He continues with this point in chapter 2. All of chapter 2 emphasizes this point of how to love one's neighbor as himself. In verses 1 to 13, specifically loving one's neighbor as oneself. And then in verses 14 to 26, producing fruit or living a godly life, not living a wicked life, and showing that you are godly by how you treat others. This is in 14 to 26. James, in other words, he's showing, like John does in 1 John, that if you truly love God, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Right. If you truly love God, the one that we cannot see, you will love the neighbor that you can see. If we don't love the neighbor that we can see, we cannot love God whom we cannot see. That's 1 John four twenty to 21 And also keep in mind, when we speak of love, speak of neighbor, speak of wisdom, truth, works, fruit, whatever we speak of, we have to think of it, these words, in biblical terms, not in the terms of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But think of these words as the Bible thinks of them. Verse 1. My brethren, he addresses His hearers, his recipients, as brethren, he has done so in chapter one, and he will continue to do so throughout this letter. In one nineteen, he called them my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren, and also in chapter two, two fourteen, he says, my brethren, and so, and also two five, my beloved brethren. Beloved brethren, though he addresses them as brethren, and it is true of many of them, he is not assuming that is true of all of them. That's why he has to bring up the sins that could be evident among the people of God who claim to be the people of God. So when we hear these words, we are addressed as brethren because that is the term of honor and term of endearment. And that is, that is that which is true of us if we live up to the name. But if we don't live up to the name, then this is not true of us. And we need to be confronted by our sins and make sure we are in the faith. Second Corinthians 13:5: Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It is necessary for us to examine ourselves to see if we are true brethren or not. So we can, shouldn't be misled just because he's saying, my brethren, automatically we are brothers in the Lord. It may be true, but it may not be true. And it is up to us to examine. He also owns them. He says, my brethren, as he says, my beloved in verse 5, verse 14, my brethren. He owns them in that he is endeared to them. He's concerned about their souls. He wants their best interest in mind. Even though he speaks in very clear, stern, and harsh words, even in chapter 2, verse 20, he calls them foolish fellow. In chapter 4, verse 4, he calls them adulteresses. In 1, 8, and in 4, 8, he called them double-minded. So it is right and good to address the sin as it needs to be addressed, but at the same time, we, he does it because he loves them. He cares for them. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. James, he cares, he loves them. That's why he's addressing them this way. Then he warns them, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's addressing those who claim to have faith. This is evident in verse 14 when he says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can, can that faith save him? When we have faith and we hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it must be a true faith and it must manifest itself. It must show the fruit of true faith. And he says we shouldn't hold faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with that which is contrary to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do that. It is possible as he Shows in two fourteen to twenty six to have a false faith. So if we claim to have faith in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, it should not be accompanied by personal favoritism. It must be true faith. Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do? What I say. Also, he calls him our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he called glorious Lord Jesus Christ? That's the same in 1 Corinthians 2 8. If they had understood these things, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He is a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He came from glory. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was, John seventeen, five. Then he came into the world, he descended into the world, and he descended in humiliation. And why did he descend in humiliation? To pay for our sins, to die for our sins. It says in Philippians two, five. Philippians two five to eight. Have this attitude in your in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross he humbled himself to be with lowly, weak, feeble, sinful people like us. And just as he did so, we are supposed to do so. We're not to be only mingling and mixing with the elite and the wealthy of the world, but also with the lowly and with the common man, just as Jesus did. He humbled himself to come into the world, and therefore, if we have faith in him, It should not be accompanied with personal favoritism, with an attitude of personal favoritism, but with an attitude of humility towards everybody. Jesus did so. And as Jesus accomplished our redemption that way, he eventually was exalted. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, also God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ had the full and eternal perspective in mind. And if we have faith in him, we should do the same. Therefore, no personal favoritism towards the rich or toward the poor. This doctrine is a doctrine that has been established since the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament doctrine to maintain impartiality. It says this in Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, 1 to 3. 23, 1 to 3. You shall not carry a false rumor. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to, so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Let's also read three uh, 4 to 9. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause Of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. We should not be, verse 3, partial to a poor man in his dispute. And also, verse 7, keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Leviticus also, in Leviticus 19, Leviticus chapter 19, 19, 15 to 16, 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. This mentality, this attitude, this approach must be in all of us. Whether we're dealing with civil matters or whether we're dealing with church matters or personal matters, we should always be impartial. We should not defer to the great or have a bent toward siding with the poor. The downtrodden. We have to be judges who are impartial in every circumstance. In James 2 verses 2 to 7, he now addresses an example which is a common sin. An example which is a common sin in all periods of time and in all cultures. James 2.2. 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? When two kinds of men come into the assembly, into the church, to worship, to mingle, to hear the word, to meet others, a rich man and a poor man, and it's quite obvious many times who is rich and who is poor. It's quite obvious by the way that they look and the way that they dress and what kinds of clothing or jewelry that, that they have, how they drive up in a car, what kind of car they have. It's evident often at first sight. It's not foolproof, sometimes we are mistaken, but that's often the way it happens. This is the way it always is, or usually is. And so when that happens, what does the flesh do? The flesh immediately gravitates towards the rich, towards the powerful, towards the influential, the, ones who, the one who is dressed in fine clothing. That's the way the flesh gravitates. And then it avoids or downplays the downtrodden. Those who have less, less money, less income, less ability to contribute or to tithe to the church, less attention is given to those individuals. That's what's happening here. And James says that should not happen. And when it does happen, we have made distinctions among ourselves, false distinctions, and we have become judges With evil motives. We can't say that we have good intentions because our actions show our evil motives. Many people would like to say, well, you don't know my heart. You don't know my intentions. I have good intentions. God sees the inside. You can't judge me. Yes, we are to judge one another. He says here, he's judging them. Is he not the apostle is judging them and saying, you have become judges with evil motives. You're supposed to use judgment, but righteous judgment. Right. Do not judge according to appearance, but when you judge, judge with righteous judgment. John seven twenty four. We are supposed to judge with righteous judgment. You hypocrite, first take the log that, uh, that is in your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. First, handle our own sin, and then we can help somebody else. So first, judge ourselves, and then we can help to judge others. But when we've got sin that is welling up within us, how is it possible for us to minister to somebody else? Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. First, take care of our own sins and hypocrisy, and then we can help others. But when we don't do that, we are judges with evil motives. It is evil and it's evident because of the fruit of the fruit of what people see. When they see us making these distinctions, we shouldn't do so. And pastors pastors have everyone has this temptation, but pastors have a particular in the local church this particular temptation to defer to the great, to the wealthy. 1 Timothy 3.3, it says, 1 Timothy 3.3, that the pastor, the elder, should be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 3.8, it it says, deacons also should not be fond of sordid gain. Not be fond of sordid gain. Sordid. Dubious, filthy, gain, that kind of gain or wealth. And how would that happen? By deferring to the rich. Instead of being objective to treating everyone alike, when people or when pastors, deacons, elders and deacons, when they are favorable, partial to the rich, it is sordid gain. Because they're going to get money, but not in the right way not the way the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. 6.17, 617 to nineteen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Contrary to the evil motives, he's encouraging the pastors to have good motives. Pastors and the, their flocks, to have good motives. Verses 5 to 7 now, James 2, five. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Did not God choose the poor of this world? Yes, indeed He did. Why did God choose the poor of this world? To shame the rich, because the rich think that they have the favor of God because they have riches. 1 Corinthians one twenty 1 Corinthians 1.26-31. 1.26 1, of 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And this is a quote from Jeremiah 9:23 to 24. Jeremiah 9:23 to 24, and Jeremiah mentions the mighty, he mentions the wise, and he mentions the rich in Jeremiah 9:23 to 24. And the apostle has the same in mind here when he's mentioning the wise, mighty and the noble. The noble usually have more wealth than the commoner. So, God chooses the poor to be rich in faith. Jesus taught that in Luke 16:19 to 31 the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was poor in this world, but rich in faith. And when he died, he went to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man, he had everything in this, in this world now. But when he died, he had nothing in the world to come. He was in Hades in torment. Further, the, the apostle in James 2.5, he mentions that this is a promise, heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. The promise is to those who love him, which was also mentioned in 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who Love him. But what is the test of whether we love God or not? John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> yeah. In this case, is the rich man keeping or or the, the individual deferring or being partial toward the rich man, is he keeping the commandments? No, he's not loving his neighbor as himself. And as he explains in verses six and seven, is the rich man loving his neighbor when he drags the poor into court? No. That's not true love. True love is the way the Bible explains true love to be. But what does the rich what do the rich do? Verse six. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? And personally drag you into court? Isn't that what, sh- what the rich do? They have the monetary means to hire the lawyers. Correct? They hire the lawyers, and the, often it's the craftiest of the lawyers, the most corrupt of the lawyers, who are able to spin lies in order to get what they desire for the rich. Correct? Ahab and Jezebel. In 1 Kings 21, Ahab and Jezebel. We have, relatively speaking, a rich man and a poor man. Even though Naboth had a vineyard, he had land, he was not the king. He was not the king, and he did not have a lot of force and a lot of wealth to hire whomever he wanted when he was dragged into court. Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth. He, wanted the, he coveted that vineyard. And now both said, I can't do that. It's the inheritance of my father's because it was supposed to be kept within the clan, in the tribe. The land was supposed to be kept that way according to the law of Moses. Well, Ahab wanted it, but when Ahab and Jezebel uh, thought of this situation, especially Jezebel brought up the idea, Ahab puts his stamp of approval on it And allows Jezebel to hire, to find, two sons of the devil, sons of Belial called worthless men in 1 Kings 21.10 and 21.13. These worthless men, sons of the devil, who were hired to lie, hired to lie, they dragged Naboth into court. And this is what they said. 21.10. You cursed God and the king. You cursed God and the king. So verse 13. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified (coughs) against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. This is what... The rich do, often, with their money. They exploit the poor and they get their way, whatever they want, even if it produces death. Now, we might say, that's far-fetched. Well, (laughs) if it is, why does he use the example in 2.11 of murder? He says, okay, you avoid adultery, but you murder, in 2.11. And then in chapter 5, chapter 5, 1 to 6, he readdresses this subject of how the rich and the poor, how the rich treat the poor. And it says in 5, verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. He does not resist you because he is helpless. He's so weak. With the circumstances, he doesn't have the money, he doesn't have the attorneys, he doesn't have the influence of the people, he doesn't have the majority, he's just an obscure man and you mistreat him and you put him to death. And we might think, do Christians, do people in churches do this? Yes, of course they do it. They think that you can be a murderer and a Christian. They think you can be a fornicator and a Christian. They think you can be a thief and a Christian. They think you can be a liar and a Christian. You can be an adulterer and a Christian. Name it, any sin. They put these two together, whatever the sin plus the word Christian. But when they do that, verse 7, James 2, 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Yes. Are they not blaspheming the name of Christ whenever they couple their sin with the name of Christ? They are blasphemers. They're not Christians they are insulting or blaspheming, dishonoring God. 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, 14, 1 Peter four, fourteen to 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. In the name of Christ, let him glorify God. And if we are reviled and persecuted, mistreated for that, then fine. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. But we cannot put murderer and Christian together. Thief and Christian together, evildoer and Christian together, troublesome meddler and Christian together. These kinds of sins cannot be coupled with Christian or believer or disciple of Christ, follower of Jesus, however we may say it. They don't go together. And if they are together, then the one claiming it ought to repent, ought to repent for forgiveness of sins luke twenty four forty six to forty seven James now in two eight to thirteen he goes to the subject of the commandment to love our neighbor if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well he says that This commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, first found in Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. And universally understood in Jewish history, even ancient Jewish history, even in the New Testament, Luke 10.25-37. Even the lawyer, he understood that this was the second of the greatest commandments. He even knew that. It was an obvious one from Leviticus 19, 18. If we truly love God, the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, and might, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Leviticus 19, 18. We also find these two commandments brought together in Mark 12, 28 to 34, where that scribe answered Jesus well. He gave the correct answer. So this is an obvious commandment to summarize how we love God. And it's called here a royal law. And why is it royal? Whose law is it? It's the law of the king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19.16, that's Christ, king of kings and lord of lords. And Revelation 17.14, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. It's royal because in his domain, in his kingdom, wherever he rules, and he rules where? Everywhere. He rules generally. He has the rule of nature generally and all the earth generally, but he also has a specific and particular rule. Where? In his church. In his church. Where it is, what is called the kingdom of God. So there... According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what kind of neighbor do we mean? When we read in Exodus 23, 1 to 9, it had to do with all kinds of people. Even those who hate us, who are our enemies. If we find some tragedy has happened to them or their animals, then we are to help them. That's love but also the rich and the poor. If we are impartial, then we're truly employing this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And if so, we're doing well. We are doing it according to the will of God. We're pleasing Him. However, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are condemned, Are convicted by the law as transgressors. The moment we show partiality, we are sinning. That partiality starts from within and then plays itself out by our actions. That partiality is a sin. Impartiality is godliness. That's why whenever we have a dilemma, a decision, a conflict, At our utmost virtue is to be impartial. It doesn't matter who they are. It could be your wife, it could be your son or daughter, it could be your friend, it could be your best friend. It could be your employer, your manager, the owner of the company. It could be somebody lower than you, maybe the lowliest one, the lowest one on the totem pole in your company. It doesn't matter. Whoever they are, we're supposed to be impartial. And if we're not, we are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Yes, the law. The law will be brought to bear against us and accuse us of transgression. The law. The law is, in a sense, personified as an attorney as a lawyer against us because it understands human nature, it explains it, and then it brings it to bear on our sin. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This verse is not a verse to be distorted as though every sin is of equal magnitude. It's not teaching every sin is equal in magnitude, severity, heinousness. Every sin is not on the same level. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not addressing that subject. We know that that's not the case. Every sin is not of the same gravity or the same seriousness from John 19 John 19:11 19, John 19:11 when Jesus was on trial before Pilate he said the following Jesus answered you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above for this reason he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He who delivered you up to me has the greater sin. Pilate had sin, but not the greatest sin. He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin, he says. And then even with unclean spirits or demons, in Luke eleven, Luke eleven, twenty-four to twenty-six, Luke eleven, twenty-four to twenty-six. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. The seven other spirits... So a total of eight spirits go and inhabit a man. They are more evil than the first spirit. More evil. And the state of the man is worse than at the first. James is not addressing that point. The point James is addressing is that if we transgress in one point, even one minor point, One minor point in our own mind. It's still sin and worthy of death, worthy of guilt, worthy of us being accused of being sinners and transgressors. He's teaching us that we shouldn't make light of it. We shouldn't make light of any sin. That's the point. And if we do break the law of God in one point, then we are worthy of death And we have transgressed the other laws. Because there is an interrelationship between the one specific sin that is the focal point of our transgression and the other sins that are associated with it. This is what he's meaning here. The soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18.4 Adam and Eve, they transgressed in just one way, one point. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, the Lord told Adam that from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of it, if you eat from it, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Just taking fruit from the wrong tree. Just taking fruit from the wrong tree. Think about that. In our own mind, we might think that's trivial. But no, it's a transgression against the law of God, the word of God, the commandment of God, the covenant of God that he delivered to Adam and Eve. First to Adam and then to Eve. He delivered it to them. And in that way, if it's a transgression against the commandment of God, it deserves death. That's the point James is making as well. Think for a moment. When one commits, when one commits the sin that he's been mentioning here in chapter 2, 1 to 7, partiality. What's involved in the sin of partiality that transgresses the Ten Commandments? He's about to give two examples here. What is it in the sin of partiality? Is it not covetousness? Covetousness, which starts from within, it starts in the heart. It's covetousness. And then covetousness, when it is manifested, it is manifested in partiality. And then what is the goal of partiality? Isn't it theft or sordid gain? If you acquire wealth in the wrong way, in the false way, Then it's sordid gain. It's filthy gain. It's gain that you should not have. So you have stolen. So you have broken that commandment. And then, when you are putting yourself above the law of God in behaving in this way, what other of the Ten Commandments have we transgressed? To love God with all our heart. Well, the first, the first three commandments. The first three commandments. Why? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but we have put ourselves on the throne right. instead of God. What about the second commandment? You shall not make for yourselves an idol. What has become an idol with which we are, by which we are possessed? The riches. the riches. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve God and mammon. The two don't go together. You'll hate the one and despise the other. Love the one, so forth. You cannot. So the second commandment. What about the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Isn't that what he said in verse 7? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So we take up the name of the Lord in vain when we contradict that name. When we blaspheme that name. So we take up his name in vain. And then when do you think that this transgression is happening? When the rich and the poor enter your assembly. On what day of the week, typically? On the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. So we are defaming or, and we are uh, transgressing on the Lord's day. When the focus should be the Lord, the focus is on oneself instead of the Lord. You see, and we could keep going with this, with the Ten Commandments, that this is the way he means it when he says, if you keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, you have become guilty of all. Because obeying God is bound up in obedience. Full obedience. And if there's no full obedience, then there is guilt. Galatians three. Ten, Galatians three ten. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them." The curse is upon us if we do not abide. If we do not observe all things written in the book of the law. If we don't obey all things, we're under a curse. And even if that transgression is in the heart, we're transgressors and we're under a curse. Therefore, let us not make light of any sin, knowing that it brings guilt upon us. Now he illustrates in 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. How can anyone say, well, I keep the commandments of God, I just committed murder, but that's okay. Murderers can go to heaven. Many people believe that. Murderers can go to heaven. If you commit self-murder, suicide, you can still go to heaven. You can still go to heaven. Judas Iscariot, many people think, many Christians think. Judas Iscariot went to heaven. After all, it says, he admitted I have um, betrayed innocent blood and he, had, and he felt remorse and he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver. So isn't that repentance? People say, no. It wasn't true repentance. There is a distinction. 2 Corinthians 7.10 makes a distinction between godly sorrow that leads to salvation And the worldly sorrow that leads to death. Judas, his sin led to death. Or his sins led to death. So murder and Christianity do not go together. Adultery and Christianity do not go together. Nor any other sin that people might try to join with the name Christian. We also have to point out in verse 11... His illustration of what the royal law is, verse 8, the royal law is, and the scripture, and the whole law, verse 10, and the law, verse 11, and as well, verse 12, the law of liberty, the law of liberty. He introduced that phrase in 125. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. Well, what is this perfect law, law of liberty, royal law? It's the Ten Commandments. It is the Ten Commandments. It must be the Ten Commandments. He's not illustrating by saying, Leviticus chapter 2, make sure you bring the proper grain offering to the temple. No. Correct? Correct. He's not talking about grain offerings. He's not even talking about burnt offerings. Leviticus chapter 1. He's not talking about burnt offerings. He's not talking about grain offerings. Did he say anything here about celebrating the, peace of the, uh, the feast of the Passover? Or any other festival? Leviticus 23. Is he talking about those subjects here? No, the context is the law, moral law, which is embodied and summarized in the Ten Commandments. If we love God, the first four commandments, we will obey those commandments. If we love our neighbor as proof that we love God, we'll obey the last six of the ten commandments where he illustrates, and that's why he's illustrating from adultery and murder, because we're dealing with love your neighbor. That's why he has these here. We also find in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. Where the Apostle Paul speaks similarly as James does. And we should note, as you're finding Romans 13, 8 to 10, Romans 13, 8 to 10, that Paul and James are in harmony. Yep. Paul and James are in harmony, especially when we consider the next section of James 2:14 to 26. These two apostles agree. They are both inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so to illustrate the Ten Commandments in loving your neighbor as yourself, this is the law that is the perennial law for every period of time, even in the New Covenant era. 13.8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. What is the law? Verses 8 and 10. What is this law? He says and illustrates, and in verse 9, he also calls it Commandment. It's the Ten Commandments. And he has here a few of those that, in particular, are taken from the second half or the second table of the law. uh, The commandments from five to ten, the last six of the Ten Commandments. He's giving examples from them. Why? Just like James, because we're talking about how to love your neighbor. If we love our neighbor, we won't commit adultery, commit murder, steal, or covet. We won't do those things. We must note this, and there are many, many more Old and New Testament examples of this fact that the law of liberty, perfect law, royal law, the law of Christ, the law of love, these are various expressions found in the Bible, that... We're talking about the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. That means we are not at liberty to destroy the law of liberty. Right. We are not at liberty, we don't have freedom to abolish the Ten Commandments. Those who do so, they are practicing lawlessness. Yep. Lawlessness. Romans 6, 15 to 23. Those who do so are practicing licentiousness. Jude verse 4. Those who do so do not believe in holiness. They may claim all of it, but they don't believe in holiness or righteousness. These people are against the law. They are antinomian. And they do not understand and they do not believe the true gospel. Those who don't understand this correctly have not understood the true gospel in the first place and they're not preaching and living that true gospel. They belong to Satan and they are going to hell. Those who deny the moral law in the Ten Commandments as applicable to us today in the New Covenant era. So therefore, we must understand these issues correctly and not undermine them, lest we go to hell. That's how serious of a matter it is. It's not a matter of take it or leave it. We cannot have a buffet, a theological buffet approach to this subject. The Bible doesn't give it. Even James doesn't give it, does he? He says he yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Well, whatever James is talking about, we better figure it out before we're guilty of all. And if we're guilty of all, what's going to happen? We're going to be judged. Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty will be brought up, brought to account by the judge of heaven, Jesus himself. Acts 17, 30 to 31. He will judge the world in righteousness. And when he does, he's going to judge us based on whether we have kept this law after our conversion. Of course, before our conversion, we transgress, and the rest of the world continues to transgress, and we preach to them about their transgressions that they might repent of their sins and believe in the gospel, believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the reason we need to preach even the Ten Commandments to unbelievers. They're still going to be held accountable. But we don't trust our obedience to the Ten Commandments for our salvation, we trust in Jesus Christ. We believe He died and rose again for our sins. But if we truly do believe that, verse 1, James 2.1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly do have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, then the outflow of that true faith, the works, the fruit, the evidence, the proof will be in how we live and whether we measure up to the Ten Commandments. Contrary to the way we used to easily transgress them. Now when we transgress, it pricks us. Our conscience, right? And then we desire to repent. We desire to avoid those same sins. We don't indulge in them. We don't go back to them. We don't bask in them. We keep on despising them and seek for ways to overcome them. That's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer, the false convert and the true convert. He will judge us. Verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There is no mercy if we don't show mercy. Well, we show mercy to others, our neighbor, even the lowly, We show mercy to them because God showed mercy to us. We understand what we were and how we are now, so then we show mercy to others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we don't show mercy now, there's no mercy later. We'll be judged. No mercy now, no mercy later. Mercy now means mercy later. We have to start practicing mercy. Mercy, now, Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five, and verse six, Matthew five, five seven, Matthew five seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew six fourteen and fifteen, six fourteen and fifteen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And Matthew 18 Matthew 18 Matthew 18 and we pick it up at verse 32. It's Matthew 18:21 to 35. After announcing a parable, he now applies it. 18.32 Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. In these cases, especially in Matthew 6 and 18, we are dealing with a transgression or a sin committed against us. Well, when that transgressor repents, we ought to forgive. When he entreats us, we ought to forgive. And if we don't forgive, we don't have show mercy, then There's no mercy to us on the day of judgment. But also, generally speaking, if we don't show love to others, God will not show love to us on that day of judgment. If we don't treat them properly, God will treat us harshly on the day of judgment. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.